It's Tuesday, June the 8th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Today, we have an interview with David Bars, the founder of XOut Capital and DMB Holdings, who we'll introduce in more detail in a moment. Tomorrow, my co-host Rebecca Darst and I will discuss important and interesting items from the newsletter. But without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. Pleased to have you here today to listen to David Bars, who is the founder and chief executive officer of XOut Capital and founder of DMB Holdings, which is a private family office. He was formerly the CEO of Third Avenue Management for 25 years, a pioneer in fundamental bottom-up deep value investing. Mr. Bars also serves as director of Gavanta Energy Corporation and sits on the board of trustees of the Brooklyn Law School. David, thank you very much for joining us. John, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. I should note at the beginning of this that David and I are personal friends. Our sons went to the Hackley School together, so we'd known each other a long time. I wanted to start at the beginning, really. You graduate from Brooklyn Law School, but you don't practice law. How did you get from Brooklyn Law School to Third Avenue? So I graduated school and went to work for a bankruptcy law firm at a time when bankruptcy was not a, let's just call it an esteemed practice of law. I graduated in 1987, so the stock market crashed just a little over a month after I started working in 1987 of October, and that resulted in a turning over, if you will, of the economy and uh, the marketplace, and lo and behold, a lot of companies started to file bankruptcy over the next few years, and the practice uh, really grew in popularity, as did both the clients that I serviced and the practice ended up evolving into mostly a creditor's rights organization. So I was representing a lot of banks or other financial institutions that had either extended credit or were willing to extend credit to companies in financial distress. And I started representing a firm called MJ Whitman, run by a gentleman named Martin Whitman. And Martin Whitman had been one of the early deans of distress in terms of investing in troubled businesses. And after working with him on a couple of transactions as his outside counsel, he offered me the job to come in-house. And so I joined MJ Women in 1991, just four years after starting the practice of law, and never looked back after that. While we were in MJ Women, he had a small but fledgling asset management practice, and I suggested to him that we might consider growing the business of making investments for ourselves or our clients on a fund basis as opposed to doing it through MJ Whitman, which was principally a broker dealer. Right. He said, well, we can't call the asset management firm MJ Whitman because I'm 67 years old. It's not the time to start a new business. <laughs> we make offices on Third Avenue, New York. So we cleverly named our firm Third Avenue and launched one fund that became four funds that became 12 funds that became a global asset management business that we grew from 1991 until 2003, when we actually sold a controlling stake in it to a publicly traded company called Affiliated Managers Group. I'll pause there. You'll pause there. So in this new company, Third Avenue Capital, at one point, I think you had as much as like 25 or $26 billion under management. Is that correct? 
We actually had 31 billion. 31 billion. We had gotten to a uh, a peak of 31 billion in, in 2007. And was it focused primarily on distressed debt or was, you know, were there a broad range of investing strategies? Yeah, we had diversified into a number of different asset class categories, mostly what we generally referred to as value investments, but we ended up owning a lot more equities as the economy strengthened than distressed debt investments because there just weren't that many of them. Right. And of course, the financial crisis changed all of that in the large. How did the financial crisis, you know, what, what was the impact of that? Obviously, it, it must have read, led to redemptions, but what was the impact on the overall business? Well, our business was quite frankly decimated from the financial crisis, mostly because we had owned, of the $30 billion, we owned a dominant share of that. Maybe we had $3 billion in what I'll call uh, credit instruments broadly. Mm-hmm. So the bulk of it was in common stocks of, quite frankly, well-capitalized companies that we believed were actually going to be able to weather through the financial crisis and maybe even become better opportunities as some of those security prices became more attractive. Unfortunately, for many of our clients who at that point in time had become institutions ranging from broad-based pension plans to foundations and endowments, they all had large allocations in their own portfolios to alternative assets. Alternative assets are generally less liquid. Right. Funds like ours were very liquid. They were daily redemption strategies. So we became what I referred to at the time as an ATM machine for our client base. Right, exactly. We need money. (laughs) You guys have it. We're just going to click in our card into the machine and please give it back to us now. Against the argument that we were making to them that this is the, the worst time to redeem us because we have the best opportunity to take advantage of our strategy, but it mattered not because... We were liquid and they needed liquidity. And so that became cataclysmic in the sense that we were selling at a time when it was the worst time to sell. Right. And, and then something called behavioral finance kicked in because portfolio managers had to make decisions that they hadn't been faced with before, which is what to sell when you have to sell something. Right. If you had done nothing from, I don't know, October of 2008... If you had done not one thing for 10 years, where would that portfolio be today? You know, it's very informative for what I'm doing currently today, but I think the value securities tend to lag and laggards performed worse than companies that were more growth-oriented businesses. Momentum. So the quality of balance sheets became less important Right. and the growth rate of businesses became more important and momentum intersected with that. And so you saw a gapping out, if you will, in a material way of the performance between those two types of underlying investment themes. And so if we did nothing, we would still have massively underperformed how the market has evolved and what happened over the next 10 years. Even though the companies that you had invested in had the best balance sheets, basically, right? Yeah. (laughs) Modern American. 
market theory, I guess. So you leave Third Avenue Capital. Take us through that. How did you end up at XOUT? There were a number of insights that I that I developed spending 25 years at Third Avenue. So the first insight is that what I was watching happening were flows were being dominated into passive investment strategies. And I think even at one point in time, you know, the dean of, of value, Warren Buffett, said, you know, when I gone, put all my money in Vanguard. Right. And I, I remember that day and I was like, boy, that's a that's a statement for a guy who's who's lived his life and built his career and wealth around picking individual securities and just buying and holding them, right? Right. So passive flows dominating the market. The most dominant allocation went to large cap US equity. So we were watching something like the S P five hundred just attract dominant flows and at the same time massively outperform all active investors. The second insight that I had developed is that not everything in an index is good. And indexes buy everything and they buy it indiscriminately. The problem is that they were driven more by uh, balance sheet focus and valuation and less about what underlying fundamental growth opportunities some of these businesses, and in particular, businesses engaged in technological disruption were going to be doing to the rest of the marketplace, which led to my third insight that probably one of the most significant forward-facing risks is technological change and identifying which of those companies are going to be the disruptors. It's not an easy thing to do. Right. And so might it be easier to simply focus on excluding the companies that are going to be disrupted as opposed to picking the companies that are going to be the disruptors. And that led to the naming of the business X out. In other words, it's more important what you leave out of your portfolio than what you put in. And those three insights are the fundamental underpinnings of the strategy that gave rise to the launching of an exchange-traded fund to accomplish exactly what I was seeking to address. How did you choose the ones that are to be disrupted? What are your... uh, Uh, Rules. Rules. Let me start from the premise that I don't think I have the perfect set of rules for unearthing who these disruptees are going to be, but I think I have a pretty good multi-factor model. And it starts with fundamental financial data that each company, and we, we choose or chose the largest 500 US market cap companies as our constituent base. Right. Just as a factual matter, the S&P 500 is not the largest 500 US market cap companies. I think there's many in the market that believe that that's the case, but they have some odd rules of their own that create the constituents for the S&P 500. It's an index committee run by a single person and they choose to eliminate some names. And one which got them a little bit of hot water last year was Tesla. They just didn't put it in their index, even though it met all the criteria to be in their index. So putting that aside, we just picked the largest 500 by market cap list in the U.S. We then take seven distinct fundamental tests, financial tests, and we give 
each company a score on each of these seven metrics. So the seven are growth. We measure a company's growth quarter over quarter and against historical time frame. We measure their hiring or labor force decisions. We look at profitability. We look at what we call analyst sentiment. Are analysts putting on buy or sell recommendations for those uh, underlying companies? We look at what is the company doing with its capital in terms of buying back its own security. We look at whether they're spending money on research and development and capital expenditures to help grow their business. And then lastly, we, we have what we call a management factor, where we seek to evaluate how the senior leader of each company is addressing technological disruption as a risk. And mm -hmm. we measure that through stock price performance from the date of the CEO in place at the company. So we amalgamate those seven different metrics. We weight them. That's our secret sauce. And we create the score. The lowest 250 scores each quarter get removed from the portfolio. That's the way we've done it since we've launched. And we've been able to achieve about 1,200 basis points of outperformance over an underlying benchmark like the S&P 500. So it's worked. So far, but it hasn't even been two years. And so past performance is not indicative of future returns. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with David Bars. Welcome back to the interview with David Bars, founder and CEO of XOut Capital. David, before the break, we were talking about how you score companies to decide whether they are likely to be disrupted and whether they make the cut to be included in your portfolio. Let's just take media as an example. Can you talk about how the big media companies score in your system? Media companies have actually scored poorly. And, you know, let's pick on one that's gotten a lot of recent press, Discovery. You know, they made a large acquisition of a number of media assets out of AT&T. It shouldn't surprise you that AT&T has scored poorly <laughs> since our inception and probably for a long time previous to that. These are assets and businesses that aren't growing at a pace that's keeping up with the, the other sectors, if you will, that are growing at a much faster rate. And so I'd say that, again, individually as a sector, there are companies within the sector that are all facing technological disruption. How each of them addresses it is, is unique to that underlying company. And I think discovery, if I had to assess fundamentally what's going on, they need to acquire assets to grow their business. And they had a unique opportunity here to, to acquire a big set of assets. Can it in the future quarters provide financial results that alter its score? Absolutely. And could it then get into the portfolio as opposed to being X out? Absolutely. But at present, many of the media assets, and I put media and telecom in a similar category, are struggling to grow their businesses. And part of that struggle relates to the technological disruption that a, a Netflix is imparting on them, or YouTube through Google. When it all shakes out, there are going to be three 
companies, right? There's going to be Netflix, and maybe Netflix will be owned by Apple or whatever. There's going to be Google with YouTube. There's going to be Amazon. Disney, obviously, is bulked up by 21st Century Fox and having success with the subscription service. But Discovery, you know, they have HBO Max, which I think is $15.99 a month. At some point, you know, you're 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 at a bundle if you have all of those where you might as well just have cable. And I wonder if you have a view as to who can survive the shakeout. It's for me much harder to pick who the disruptors are going to be because mm-hmm. that's the winners. I think we're getting signals every day. If you wanted to take a bet that Amazon's purchase of MGM is probably going to be a lot more impactful than Discovery's purchase of AT&T's media assets. That's probably a bet I'd be willing to make. But it's much easier for us in our strategy to outperform the broad index by simply keeping Discovery out of this. Right. And let's let you know Amazon continue to grow and expand its platform in ways that have so many competitive advantages besides their unlimited access to capital right now and their ability to diversify their business, who the next Amazon's going to be or the the likely technological upstarts that are going to come in and try and pick off pieces of the business that they have so that they can ultimately grow to a, a large enough size for Amazon to buy them. Right. That's the harder thing to do, but it's elegantly easy to just not own something and let them trip and fall. One of the major technological disruptors, obviously, is machine learning slash artificial intelligence. And it seems to me, anyway, that if you look at financial services broadly, artificial intelligence and machine learning is something that will, at some point, completely disrupt the current lineup of financial services companies. Are there ones that seem already to be in the process of being undone by by technology, by these technologies? That's the area of financial service companies. And, and as that, that industry is broadly defined, is probably the area most ripe for disruption. I think most of the major financial institutions would like to have their shareholder base think of them as technology companies. One exercise we did for fun was to count how many times Jamie Dimon said in his shareholder letter, (laughs) technological disruption versus interest rates. (laughs) And I think it was a a pretty close dead heat, right? But what do you think the market pundits were focused on? It was interest rates. What's going to happen to interest rates? What's that mean for us? How is that going to impact our ability to grow our business? But I think they are all very focused on this risk, this forward-facing risk. And I think they are trying to defend their platforms from these highly aggressive and highly um, entrepreneurial financial service upstarts, technological upstarts that are trying to disrupt the whole industry, whether it's through PayPal or other payment systems that are ultimately evolving into very different things. I view what's happening, especially in the payment space, as one of the key disruption events that's going on in that whole industry. And all of them are, in effect, relying on blockchain and artificial intelligence for their fundamental growth strategy. 
One thing I've I spent a fair amount of time up at MIT as part of a group called Brain Mind, and it basically brings together all these brain scientists to talk about what they're working on. And, you know, brain science is where genomics was 20 years ago. It's at the doorstep of just extraordinary discovery and opportunity. And I wondered if you look at the sort of advanced sciences and genomic sciences, life sciences generally, you can see whole swaths of healthcare and pharmaceutical being upended. Is that what you see? Do you see pharma and healthcare really staring down the barrel of technological disruption, or are they able to pick off, you know, upstarts and sort of gradually themselves become technological disruptors? Back to my original third insight, I see the technological disruption affecting all companies in all industries. Mm -hmm. And whether it's healthcare or real estate or consumer products or consumer staples or media, as we talked about in telecom, and even technology companies, we are Xing out currently Visa. Visa is a technology company. It's obviously we know it as a credit card company, a payment system. But it's, at its core, it's a technological company, and it's currently not scoring well enough to get in our portfolio. So I look at what the impact to healthcare is, is just another, just another sector. But I think this is, as I said, a forward-facing risk that's impacting all businesses. And every company needs to be focused on it. And at some point in time, one of my uh, nerdy suggestions has been that the Financial Accounting Standards Board that has driven the rules behind what goes into a 10K or 10Q filings quarterly has yet to require any kind of specific disclosure for technological risk. There should be a disclosure for technological risk and how one comes up with what that disclosure is and what the actual metric is. Investors need to know about this and we shouldn't find out about it after BrainMind writes some paper that, that then discloses how important this issue is. I wanted to ask you one final question. You've been around the markets a very long time. Everybody's talking about the bubble, this sort of insanity of what's going on in the marketplace. I think AMC is the most recent example, although my favorite is the $100 million deli, <laughs> which supposedly had $14,000 worth of revenue in 2020. But you've been around bubbles, you've been around market craziness. How crazy is this? current market? You know, it's crazy only in the sense of its small pocket of influence. It's not market-wide. These are, you know, pretty specific, narrow phenomenas that are occurring, and I don't think are worthy of applying to markets on a broad basis. And so even if you take, you know, the SPAC phenomena that was all the rage six months ago, and now has quieted down a bit, you know, my knowledge in the space now gets viewed through the lens of some of the, the distressed players who are now looking at these SPACs that got raised as potential mining ground for opportunity, especially as their 24-month period expires and they haven't gotten deals done. What happens then or some of the investments that they made in hydrogen technology don't turn out to be as great as they thought they were. And so, you know, investors need to redeem, but the company needs to continue to develop its technology until it can actually make some money. 
So these these are you know narrow pockets of things that are going on, whether it's GameStop or AMC, and I don't think they're applicable in a broader market sense. And as to valuations in general, I think we use historical traditional valuation models to make these kinds of judgments. But if my logic applies and technological risk change and disruption is is a forward-facing risk, then people have to become a little bit more appreciative of the value of what technological innovation has and how it should alter the paradigm of valuation as we've done in the past. So I'm an optimist. I don't think companies in the broad sense have achieved valuation metrics that are in bubble territory. I think there are a number of things that are stimulating our economy to help support what I'm saying, but I do believe the quarterly results of some of especially these highly successful companies just continue to knock the socks off of everybody's expectations. And why does that get written about for a day and then the next day everyone's talking about inflation risk or currency risk or tapering risk? And they forgot about what kind of phenomenal quarter these companies just produced. And by the way, they're not focused on this current quarter. They're focused on the quarter three years from today. And so I'm a big believer that technological innovation is going to continue to drive markets and valuations and basic things like price to book or price to sales or PE ratios are going to become less of a meaningful metric than some of the metrics we're using to at least identify the companies to exclude. All right. I think we'll leave it there. David, thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for tuning into the News Items Podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. I'll be back tomorrow with my co-host Rebecca Darst for a round of news analysis, and we'll see you then.